When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's so interesting about all these psychological skills is like it's pretty obvious when you're studying for a test or getting ready for an interview or a presentation, there's like information you have to learn and you can learn that. But it's less sort of explicit the psychological tools you need. It's just as important a piece of a puzzle as anything else. That was Sion Bylock on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoengren, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. We're thrilled to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education here at Psychologists Off the Clock because we really value our own continuing education. And I know, Jill, you've participated in a number of Praxis events. I have. Praxis is my favorite. I think probably the most memorable was when I participated in an ACT boot camp after I'd already been learning and doing ACT for about 15 years, and I still got so much out of the training. I have a memory of Steve Hayes jumping off of a phone book to demonstrate how small your committed action can be. And sometimes I'll bring up that memory and use it with my clients. And that's probably from 10 years ago. The Praxis also continues to evolve and change over time. It integrates new therapies as they come out. It has trainings in compassion-focused therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy and radically open DBT. If you go to our website at offtheclockpsych.com and visit our sponsorship page, you can get a coupon for $25 off. So check it out.
we're happy to be partnered with Dr. Rick Hansen's online training programs. He offers a six-week positive neuroplasticity training, an eight-week neurodharma program, and a year-long Foundations of Wellbeing program. If you go to our website at offtheclockpsych.com, you'll get some coupon codes there to save up to $50 off. So check it out at offtheclockpsych.com at our sponsorship page. This is Yael Schoenbrunn airing live from my studio, aka pre-recorded from my closet with Jill Stoddard, to introduce an episode with Sian Bylock, the author of Choke, What the Secrets of the Brain Reveal About Getting It Right When You Have To. I am a lifelong choker, not like choking on a piece of food, but performing suboptimally. And the process of choking can really be driven by a lot of different factors. But one is, you know, a fear of failure and a sense that we're the only ones that are struggling to perform well. One of the things that came up for me as we were having the conversation was thinking about the podcast and what a whole lot of editing goes on in the background. And I think it's an example of putting out a product that doesn't really reflect the reality and instead can sort of give this impression that we podcast co-hosts just have an ease of speaking that we may not actually have. Right. And you have to wonder how often people are listening to things like that, comparing themselves because we're humans and that's what we do and thinking, wow, you know, these women are so smart and articulate and having no idea what's happening behind the scenes. And, you know, the other thing I just thought of as you were talking about this, Yael, and maybe it's kind of ironic is when I first started on the podcast, which has been almost a year now, I was so nervous all the time. I mean, I felt on the verge of choking. I mean, every intro, every episode. But then once I realized we could edit the heck out of ourselves <laughs> and make mistakes, it was like that pressure reduced. So it's a little bit of an ironic twist. And, you know, the other thing I was thinking related to this is about social media and technology. And she talks about how self-consciousness is a predictor of choking. And again, in this same vein with social media, we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people's highlight reels. And so it makes me wonder whether self-consciousness and therefore choking has increased as part of our more like tech savvy culture in the last decade or so. It, it does really kind of make you just naturally drop into that self-conscious mode. How many people have liked it? What are the responses? Are there any comments? Are, are people sharing it? And that is just a part of how we evaluate the ways in which we're getting perceived by others. Just coming back to this idea of being more open about our failures and admitting that we edit ourselves a crap load behind the scenes, I think can give a little bit of perspective because that's what most people are doing, you know, when they post on social media or when they air a podcast episode. And I think the more that we normalize the experience of stumbling over our words, of being imperfect in the way that we present to the world, the easier it is to practice doing it. And then the more skilled that we get, the more that you've done podcasting, the more skilled you've gotten, the less anxious you get. Part of it may be that you know you can edit the work that you've done, and part of it may really be that you're building the muscle of doing this well. And so if we kind of open ourselves up to the discomfort, which is a process that we talk a lot about as therapists, the stronger we get in the skills that we're trying to build, even as we make mistakes doing them. I think that's absolutely true. And one thing I've noticed that has nothing to do with editing is that I'm getting more willing to be personal, vulnerable, uncomfortable. 
the more I've done that, the more positive feedback we've gotten. So there's really something to be said for allowing that humanness to come through, even in, you know, in all of its imperfections and how that common humanity helps connect us. Yeah. So check out this episode. Sian Bylock talks about a whole host of really terrific tips to reduce choking and to optimize your performance in lots of different circumstances from interviews to, to athletics to podcasting. So we hope you enjoy it. Sian Bylock became president of Barnard College in 2017 after spending 12 years as faculty at the University of Chicago. Her work as a cognitive scientist revolves around performance anxiety and reveals simple psychological strategies that can be used to ensure success in everything from test-taking and public speaking to athletics and job interviews. In 2010, she wrote the critically acclaimed book, Choke, that we'll be talking about today. And in 2015, she wrote How Body Knows Its Mind. In 2017, she won the Trolland Award from the National Academy of Sciences, and her recent TED Talk has been viewed more than 2 million times. Welcome, Sian. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm in good company, struggling with choking athletically, academically, and professionally. So like for many, your book really struck home with me so much so that I've actually been talking a lot about it with my three boys all summer. I can see choking evidence already in them. And this morning, I told them I was finally getting a chance to speak to the author of the book that I'd been talking about. And they asked if I was worried that I would choke, which of course made me more worried <laughs> that I would choke. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I actually, I wanted to ask you, I know you do a lot of public speaking, but when you do really high pressure performances, like say your TED talk on the topic of choking, how worried do you get that you'll choke? I get really worried. And people always ask me why I was interested in this topic in the first place. And I do a little bit of me search in addition to research, right? I'm interested in why sometimes I haven't performed at my best. And I think, you know, Everyone gets worried in different situations, whether it's performing in front of a large crowd or even doing something simple like calculating the tip on a dinner bill while your friends are watching. And the goal is not necessarily to get rid of all the worries, um, but to learn how to funnel them into something productive. And that's what I research. What happens in those stressful situations when we are worried? How do we make sure that we can put our best foot forward? Yeah. So let's start at the beginning because choking is a term that gets used colloquially, but you define it in a particular way. How do you define it? Yeah. I mean, I think we all have performance ups and downs. There's um, no secret to that. But what I'm really interested in and when I talk about choking, I'm talking about worse performance than expected given what one knows or their skill level precisely because they feel pressure in a situation. And the they feel pressure is really important because what could be pressure filled to me, my mom watching me give a big talk, which sometimes happens, would probably not be pressure-filled to you. Um, so it really matters about how an individual interprets a situation. Yeah, so it, it depends a little bit on the situation, but you do in the book and, and in your speaking engagements talk a bit about some characteristics that make it more likely that you might choke, both personal characteristics as well as the characteristics of the circumstance itself. Yeah, well, maybe actually before the personal characteristics, I'll talk about the environmental ones, because I think sure. th that's really important, right? So any situation where people are watching you, um, evaluating you, where there's something on the line for how you perform, whether positive or negative, and what, where there's expectations, potentially historical expectations about how you could perform. Um, so for, if I'm the only woman in a room, um, that could create expectations that I shouldn't succeed or that I don't have what it takes. And, and that can lead to choking. 
Um, and of course, there's also peer pressure when others are depending on you. And we see that a lot in team situations. So all of these things come together and they can really create pressure-filled situations. That really struck home for me that it, it can even happen in situations that have friendly faces, like your teammates or even like around friends who you care what they think about. And so I, I think that that might be a surprising thing for folks to realize that choking can happen even when you're surrounded by people that you like. Yeah. Um, you know, the example, you'll notice the example I gave of my pressure situation is my mom watching, right? Yeah, exactly. um, you know, when people care about us and we care about what they think, we tend also to look at ourselves through their eyes. And so it can make us really self-conscious. So one thing I talk a lot about with parents, especially around kids in sports, is that if you're going to go to their matches, make sure that you also show up to a practice or two. Don't make the first thing where you're there as an audience the important event. Um, because getting used to people watching you that you care about and want to impress um, is part of getting used to playing under pressure. Yeah. And whenever we record introductions for these podcast episodes, I record them with co-hosts that I'm really good friends with. And every single time, as soon as that record button starts, lights up, I get a little anxious and my mind kind of goes blank. So it's an interesting thing because I, I do this regularly. It's a repeated experience. And yet I find myself sort of physiologically reacting the same way every single time. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what's happening physiologically. Yeah, you want to impress them, right? And um, you don't want to waste everyone's time and have to do it over five times. And so yeah, there's you want to perform well. And I will say that, um, you know, a little bit of stress is not a bad thing, right? If you didn't care at all, that might be just as bad. And so what my research shows and that of my colleagues is that a lot of it has to do with how you're interpreting that physiological response, that sweaty palms and beating heart. I remind, we remind students that, for example, that if you didn't have that sweaty palms and beating heart, you wouldn't be alive, right? Those are important things. And actually, those physiological responses are getting your body ready to perform. So that beating heart is shunting blood to your brain so you can think. And it turns out that research shows that when you remind people to reinterpret those bodily reactions as a sign they're ready to go rather as a sign that they're ready to fall on their face, they actually perform better. So the simple act of how you think about how you're reacting matters. I think that that's such a, a cool mini intervention, and it really fits in with a kind of therapeutic approach that I and my co-hosts do, which is called acceptance and commitment therapy, because it fits in with this idea of being strategic in how you relate to what's happening internally and externally, that we have not perfect control over what's happening internally, but we have some control over how we interpret it. And so I think your advice really falls in line with that, which is to sort of reinterpret it in this way that is more positive and more helpful. This exact same physiological signal that your brain is getting that, you know, you're, you're sort of preparing for something exciting or nerve wracking that you can decide which interpretation you land on. Yeah. And it's almost like, I love how you're talking about it. It's almost like giving credit to your body for ramping up and now you have to figure out how to use it. Yeah. So we had been talking a little bit about the environmental circumstances that can contribute to choking. Um, and I, I wonder too, if there are some things that are common with people who are more likely to choke. And I guess what I'm thinking of not to sort of lead the witness here is um, is self-consciousness. Yeah, I mean, self-consciousness is, is one indicator. And I think it's partly a tendency to worry about what other people are thinking, but also to be highly aware of your own 
monitoring of yourself. And I know oftentimes when we're doing things that should just be left on autopilot, um, whether it's, you know, hitting a ball we've hit a hundred times or raising our hand to ask a question, when we start paying too much attention to what we're doing, we can disrupt a fluent performance. And being self-conscious can be one mechanism by which we do that. It's also true that people who are high performers who tend to strive for perfection can be likely to choke. And again, it's, you know, those people who want it most, who want to succeed. And, and actually, maybe you could even talk a little bit about the, the neurology behind that. So what is happening in the brain when somebody is getting really concerned and how does that interfere with performance? Yeah, so we, a lot of it is interesting. It happens even before you go into the high pressure event. So we use a technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI. Um, it's really where you can put people inside um, a hollow tube, which is just a big magnet, and you can infer what areas of the brain are working the hardest when they're doing all sorts of tasks, solving math problems or getting ready for a public speech. And what we show is that um, areas of the brain that are really our neural alarm signals that go off in signs of threat, they are really active right before a high pressure situation. So right before people go into that important event, and then they, it has these downstream consequences in that it affects the front part of our brain, the part that helps us focus our frontal cortex from doing its best when they're actually taking a test or giving a talk. Um, and so what we've interpreted these findings to mean is that a lot really rides on how we are right before we go into that. So rather than worrying or doing what ifs or even cramming right before you step in to give that speech or that test or go onto the field, um, distracting yourself a little bit, doing something different, taking your mind off of what you're about to step into can actually be really important. And this can happen in all sorts of ways. Um, we know that there's professional athletes who sing songs as they walk onto the field or do crossword puzzles right before, you know, my trick before I go into an important interview or a speech is I read us weekly, like something that just takes my mind off of what I'm about to do. I love that tip. And it's, it, it is kind of a counterintuitive tip. Cause I had, I always thought that it's, you know, take advantage of every moment before a big interview or a big, you know, high pressured situation to prepare, right. Cause there's this emphasis and, and you talk about that in your writing as well, that being really highly prepared is important, but that right before is actually the time to sort of let your body calm down a little bit so that your brain can perform optimally. Yeah. And it's hard to let go. Like we want to cram up to the last moment. Um, but I will say, for example, there's lots of studies of students who test, who study over a certain number of days versus students who cram right at the end. And it turns out that cramming can help you for a few minutes or remembering cursory things. But if you want to remember anything long term, the cram is not so good. Um, and so we want to, we have this tendency to want to work until the end. And one way that I get over this is I talk about it as kind of cognitively offloading my thoughts. And the way I do that is I write down like the three take home points of my talk, right at the top of, of my talk or the three things I want to get across. And it's there, it's on a piece of paper, I have it. And it sort of gives me permission to stop and do something else for a couple of minutes to let my mind calm down. And actually having with that with you during an interview, um, you know, during a test even, or even during, you know, a, a talk gives you peace of mind. If you sort of start panicking, you think you're going blank, just knowing that you have these three key points can be really helpful. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that strategy. I mean, I I am a huge fan of writing down notes, but sometimes I write down too many notes and then I can get lost in the chaos of all my ideas. So I love that idea of just simplifying it so that if you're sort of in the midst of a high pressure situation, you don't have to figure anything complicated out. It's just kind of simple and right in front of you. And it tends to be really helpful in important meetings where, um, you know, lots of people are talking back and forth and you have an agenda or things you want to get across. And it can be nerve wracking to sort of figure out what you need to say when. And there's something calming about just being able to look to those notes and seeing that reminding yourself those three points are there. Even if your mind goes blank, you know what you need to say. Yeah. One other um, area that I wanted to just directly ask you is that you sort of there's sort of two messages. So one is that choking can happen because we're overthinking. This is paralysis by analysis. But choking can also happen when we're not devoting enough attention to what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, so the way I talk about it is that, you know, when we're in pressure situations, we worry, we worry about the consequences, what other people will think about us, what's on the line. And that worry um, in itself can distract us if we're doing something where we need really to focus. Um, and but that's that, sort of when you're interrupting your working, what your yeah. capacity for working memory. Yeah. If you're doing something with to juggle numbers in your head or, you know, do something on the fly, um, reason on the fly, those worries in itself can derail you. It's like driving and talking on a cell phone, which is not a good thing to do. Even if it's hands-free, it's all about the attention, right? We only can pay attention to so much at one time. But it's also true that certain aspects of what we do run on autopilot. Like we can't pay attention to everything in our environment. Like right now you're not paying attention to your pinky toe until I say it. Right. (laughs) Um, And oftentimes when we're doing skills that are pretty well learned, talking, um, hitting a ball, you know, starting the at the top of a speech that's been memorized, we actually don't need to pay attention to every step of what we're doing. And when we worry about the situation, its consequences, one of the, re- the ways we try and react, it's counterproductive, is but we try and start controlling what we're saying. And that's where we start paying too much attention to aspects of our performance that really should just be left on autopilot. It happens a lot when we become self-conscious, when, you know, if someone comes into the room that we want to impress. And then, you know, we've all had this feeling where all of a sudden we're thinking about every word coming out of our mouth. Um, or we're thinking, overly thinking about what we're doing, and it actually can disrupt it. So it sounds like the the general tip is to try to just, in high-pressured situations, find ways to relax and let things happen more naturally as opposed to controlling them. And that that's true both for things that require muscle memory, but also for more cognitively heavy lifting tasks, like having a difficult conversation in an interview or something like that. Yeah, the key is to focus on what's helpful, right? And so um, what we know is that when we are panicked, we tend to start focusing on things that are not helpful, right? And so either that's focusing on the fact that our body is panicked or we're doing these what-ifs in our mind, and that could also involve starting to control everything we're doing, starting to think about how the other person is looking at us and what's coming out of our mouth and how we're sounding and We've all had these experiences where then all of a sudden we're not making any sense at all. Yeah. And that kind of gets to an idea that you talk about extensively in your book, How the Body Knows the Mind, this idea of embodied cognition. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the role of embodied cognition in choking. Yeah. Embodied cognition is really the idea that our thinking and our ability to operate in the world is not something that just happens within the confines of our brain. Um, So 
all of these things we know about health and wellness, that exercise can affect our mood, that it changes how we feel, um, that being in nature can affect our ability to attend to what's going on in an important test. All of this sort of displays the notion or exemplifies the notion that, that our thinking isn't just happening in one place. Um, and that's really what embodied cognition is. Um, and so, you know, I urge people as they're thinking about high pressure situations or even, you know, during COVID being in front of their computer all day, um, we know like our ability to focus is like a muscle and it wears out over time. So what are some of the things that you can do to capitalize on the environment um, to, to perform better? So for example, there's research showing that just spending a couple minutes in nature, um, looking at the leaves, looking at the birds, taking a step back can help us get our focus. Um, and, you know, that's oftentimes really hard when we're stuck inside all day. So being intentional about how we take those breaks, about how we use the environment to our advantage, I think is really important. Yeah, it, that, that example reminds me a lot of a conversation that I had with the author of a book called Rest. And it was the idea that our, our brains do better when we sort of honor the limits and take breaks so that we can work focused for, you know, approximately an hour and a half to two hours. And then it's really helpful for, especially for more cognitive demanding kind of work to take a break and often out in nature is, is really the ideal place to do it. And I think it's important to remember that, especially if we're hard driving, like we have this tendency or inclination to, to tough it out, to, you know, to bang our head against the wall until we get to the answer. But there's a psychological phenomenon called the incubation effect which actually shows that when people step away from a difficult task, they're more likely to come back and be able to solve it. And the idea is that when you step away, um, it's almost like rebooting a computer that has crashed, right? And it, when you reboot it, you get rid of dead ends and you're able to come and see things from a new or fresh perspective. It's why we you know, oftentimes figure out the problem that we were working on after we've slept or in the shower. And I always talk about it. It's why we come up with the best retort to our spouse 10 minutes after the fight. Oh, that's you know, the it's worst. This, <laughs> this ability to step away. And I think we, we often forget that even when we're not thinking about something, we're psychologically working on it. It's why we often learn, we can learn through sleep because our brains are working on things when we're not um, actually focused on it. Well, I just love the advice that, you know, to perform better, take more breaks. And it seems counterintuitive, but it's actually incredibly effective. And it's hard to do. I mean, I think recognizing that we, we don't want to often, we want to finish. So knowing this, knowing the science, now you have a tool, right, that you can use. And the idea is to really be disciplined in using it with yourself or your kids. I mean, I have kids and my nine-year-old is like, you know, a perfectionist like her mother. and wants to just finish the homework, even if like it's difficult, she's tired. And I, we really have to talk a lot about taking a break and stepping back and doing something else and coming back to it. Yeah. It's hard. It's not easy. So I, I write about the balance between work and family roles. And one of the things that I like to talk about is that working parents often feel frustrated by not being able to finish a task before they need to go on to the other role. But I think it actually provides this nice sort of way to force you to take that break from one and to switch your brain off from that task and switch it on to something else to allow that 
um, incubation period as you're describing to happen. Um, so it can be frustrating, but it's, it, it, it is ultimately quite effective if we can have the discipline or, or have our environmental constraints set up that kind of pushes us to do that. Yeah. And if we give, if we're compassionate with ourselves about it, right, that we give ourselves a break for not finishing everything, you know, 100% or perfectly. I think that's an important part of it. Um, oh, yeah. I love that you talk <laughs> about compassion in, in the world of trying to reduce choking, because I think it is, it's so critical, because that negative self-talk, as you describe, can actually make it much worse. So can you actually talk a little bit about what are the recommendations that you give for how we talk to ourselves to help optimize our performance in our different roles? Yeah, I mean, I talk a lot about the power of, you know, coaching ourselves at a distance and the 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 evidence I give, you know, I think we all have it, like the things that we say to ourselves, we're so hard on ourselves. And some of the stuff we say to ourselves, we would never say to a good friend, trying to amp them up or support them. And so we have to be compassionate with ourselves and think about how you would talk to yourself if you were talking to a friend right? Reminding them of why they should succeed, right? Giving them evidence for what they've done in the past and what they're going to do in the future and building them up rather than building them down. And even talking to yourself in the third person, like that can be really important for giving yourself a little distance. And, and it's, it is so important, not just before an event, but actually after, because we know that we can get into these psychological sort of self sabotaging rumination spins. Um, and I talk, I talk about a phenomenon oftentimes called spotlighting, um, where we're so focused on what we did and picking it apart. And it turns out that we're way more focused on what we did than anyone else. Right. Yeah. And I think that self-critical voice wants to be helpful, you know, by pointing out what we did wrong so that we can do better. But ultimately what happens is we get so disheartened about every aspect of our performance that it can be hard to find that relaxed, focused flow that we're looking for in optimal performance. Yeah. So, I mean, how would that voice talk to someone who's a good friend, right? To Or even a child, your child to like, pump them up or to reflect on a situation and move forward. We have to have the discipline and it's work. And I talk about it as discipline to like, to push ourselves forward with it um, rather than sort of ruminating on, on the past. Yeah. I love the advice <laughs> to talk to yourself as you would to your own child or to a really good friend who has been struggling in a similar way to, to you, how you've been struggling. There's really interesting research on this that we are much harsher with ourselves than we are even towards like our pets where we're more careful and kind with their feelings than we are with our own. Yeah. And it's like sort of catching yourself when you start to go down that spiral of like focusing on the negative. Okay. Can you pull out one thing that's positive, right? If you, if you were, if you replaced yourself with your friend, what would you say to them? Like actually catching yourself in the moment. And it's something you have to work on. Like I think what's so interesting about all these psychological skills is like, it's pretty obvious when you're studying for a test or getting ready for an interview or a presentation, there's like information you have to learn and you can learn that, but it's less sort of explicit, the psychological tools you need, which is why we're really fascinated with them. But that doesn't, that doesn't reduce the need to practice them. And so, you know, it, it's practicing and that those psychological tools that help us put all the information and skills we have forward. And it's just as important a piece of a puzzle as anything else. Well, I think that is such a strong 
push for practicing self-compassion because I think that's exactly right. It is a skill and it's just as important as learning the information, even though we might discount it in the kind of culture that we live in. Yeah. And um, I mentioned spotlighting, but I think it's a really interesting phenomenon. And it's it when people know about it, it can be really helpful. So it's this idea that, you know, we're all we tend to remember and pay a lot more attention to what we're doing than to what other people are doing. And so we're always worried that people have remember things that we did wrong and look at us in a bad light. And this especially tends to be especially true of women who tend to be very self-conscious about, you know, pleasing others. Um, but there's a lot of great research on this showing that people are mostly paying attention to themselves. And so they actually don't remember all the things you did. And, and you, you, we've all experienced this when you're with a group of friends, maybe you said something you didn't want to say. And later you say to one friend, Oh, I can't believe I said that. And your friend is like, I don't remember you saying that. <laughs> or like you're in a meeting and you said something kind of you thought was foolish. And then you say to a colleague, Oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. And your colleague was like, I don't remember. I thought that was a great comment. Right. So the idea is that we're all pretty consumed with ourselves and we're not paying attention to all the little things that someone else does that they're mortified about. And just remembering that is really important. Yeah. I will admit that that's something that I actively work on because I'm I'm actually, I fall into the category of highly self-conscious and I'll probably be self-conscious that I shared that on this podcast. But um, <laughs> it's, it's one of these things where because I know the research behind it, I'm constantly reminding myself like nobody's paying as much attention to you as you yeah. are to yourself and everyone will forget it if you don't bring it up and apologize exactly. for it. And I have to sort of bite my tongue to say, Oh, was that, you know, what did you think of when I said that? Or, or, you know, did I, was I off putting there? Do I need to apologize? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like such, and it's a skill to practice and um, you know, in the spirit of, you know, self-revealing, I like, I, I sometimes go out of my way to embarrass my nine-year-old when I'm dropping her off at school <laughs> or doing things. I mean, first of all, it's just kind of fun for me. Um, it, but second, parenting has to be fun. <laughs> second, you got to get some parenting fun. But second, I kind of feel like she's got to get used to being like a little embarrassed and like no one else remembers it. And so I try and use it as a teaching moment. I, I love that. Nothing horrible, but you know, I'll like, She's, you know, wants me to wait across the street while she goes into school and I'll, I'll yell, bye, you know, and, like, <laughs> and she's like, mom, and I'm like, no one's paying attention. <laughs> Ooh, I love that. I'm, I'm going to tell both my older boys that the author of this book on choke told me that I should practice embarrassing them. <laughs> Sometimes you have to think about yourself as a parent, right? And you have to do things that make you happy. <laughs> It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. We've had a number of guests on the show that we've been inspired by and that are offering you, our listeners, discounts on their programs. If you go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, you'll be able to find coupon codes for the programs of Dr. Judson Brewer, Dr. Rick Hansen, and Jen Lumenlen. So go check it out at offtheclockpsych.com and start learning today. I also wanted to make sure that we talked about different prejudices. And you write that the very act of asserting group differences in cognitive functions, such as working memory based on sex or race, can create a stressful situation where the individuals being pigeonholed 
are likely to perform below their abilities. So this idea obviously has huge social justice implications, but I wonder if you can explain how being stereotyped negatively can in and of itself diminish performance. So I talk about this idea as like evaluative apprehension. And and the idea is that if you remember, we only have so much ability to focus at one time, right? It's this limited capacity. We want to focus on what's important. We want to focus on things we should and not what we shouldn't. But now all of a sudden, if you as a member of a minority group or a member of a group that's been stereotyped to not perform as well, is also you are now also worried about whether or not you're living up or down to a stereotype that takes attention away from your ability to perform. It's like a cognitive load, right? And that can really affect how well you do. And so understanding that some people by nature of the groups that they're being identified with have that cognitive load, that's not a level playing field. And so understanding that is really important. So you can think about this as a manager or um, as a teacher, like in meetings, are you, how are you working to take some of that cognitive load off. Like if some people, you know, and this can be anything, it can be being a member of um, an underrepresented group. It can be um, also the new person on the team. So how do you get rid of some of that? Do you at meetings, are there people sitting at, you know, a big table and then some people who sit behind, like, can you figure out how to take that load off of sort of rotating seats or assigning people in different ways? Like what are the, do, do some people not speak at meetings? Can you like make sure that everyone automatically has a chance to speak? Are there different ways that you can get rid of some of the load some people might feel in a particular situation? And I think it's really important to always be thinking about that because these stereotypes and the inequalities that people bring into the, a room, we can't just say that we're not acknowledging them or that, that we don't we think of everyone the same in the room, we have to actively counter those inequalities with behaviors. Yeah. And the the research on this is just, it's, it's really startling, I think, to look at how the, the effect of stereotypes can really cause a downturn in performance for people who are experiencing that stereotype threat. And you can see the opposite. I mean, I I wonder if you could describe the Obama effect in this study that was done during Obama's run in 20, I think it was 2008, actually. Yeah. I mean, I think this idea is that you can also be lifted up by who is around you. And part of that is seeing people like you succeeding, right? And so There's great studies that I talk about in Choke and in How the Body Knows Its Mind really focused on this idea that when people are aware of individuals like them who are succeeding, whether it's a girl seeing a female math teacher who's successful in math or an African-American seeing this fantastic president who is African-American, it increases their ability to perform well. It's getting rid of some of that cognitive load. And that's why representation and role models matter. Um, It's also the case, and the research is very clear, that having diverse team members, both in lived experience and identity, leads to better decisions of teams. You don't get into groupthink. You're more likely to have to defend an opinion to someone else, which which causes you to rethink it and or to think about it better. There's just the research is very clear that these diverse groups make better decisions. 
And I wonder too, if like having diverse groups just helps reduce the the likelihood of having stereotype threat, because if you have a bunch of different people who all have different backgrounds and different you know ways of thinking about it, then it's less likely for people to um, divide in the way that we sometimes do. Yeah, I mean, I think you're hitting on a mechanism of why diverse groups make better decisions. It's that, you know, you're not coming into a situation or, you know, a meeting with preconceived notions about how everyone should act. And that sort of lets down everyone's guard. And it allows people to push in different ways to disagree, but to ultimately come, even if if the decision that or one predominant view prevails, that view will be better thought out. Yeah. And then I, what, one of the recommendations that you give for um, reducing the likelihood of choking under pressure that I loved is to recognize the diversity of skills and attributes that you have inside of yourself. Yeah, I think this also comes back to our conversation about parenting and work-life balance and that, you know, we all have multiple self aspects. So I'm a college president. I lead Barnard College at Columbia, which is, you know, the premier institution focused on women's intellectual leadership in the country. But I'm also a cognitive scientist. I study performance under stress. And I'm a mom, I'm a friend. And the idea is that, you know, we have better and worse days and aspects in each of these areas of our lives. And so being able to come home and hug one of my kids when I've had a bad day at work, can be mentally beneficial for me. It's like a buffer in a way. And actually focusing on those self aspects and and focusing on what you value about yourself in each of those, there's research showing that that can, you know, increase your positive outlook that can make you feel better and, and ultimately perform better. You know, if you can recognize that you can get those kinds of experiences from different roles, it can help you to feel that competency or that autonomy or that connectedness that we're all looking for. It doesn't have to just be, you know, on this one test for this one, you know, objective that you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And also it helps you gain, I think, perspective is something you're talking about, you know, when there's a high pressure in situation, right? Is this one thing going to decide my life? You know, that could, in some situations it will, but not in many. And it does take the pressure off of that one individual situation or circumstance or aspect of yourself. Yeah. Well, so I, I actually, I, I wanted to welcome you to talk about your role as president of Barnard. It's such a beautiful way that you bring your your research to life by, you know, showing women in leadership roles and modeling for your amazing students. And I wonder, you know, was that something you consciously thought about when you took the position? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I before Barnard, I was at the University of Chicago for 12 years, and I was a faculty member and then executive vice provost. And I was really, you know, Barnard was not, I hadn't planned to take this step, but the position came open. And the idea that I could really think about affecting an entire institution of, of women focused on, on changing the world um, in terms of of the research I do and the importance of health and wellness was exciting to me. And we're actually rolling out a lot of, of these ideas. Of course, you know, I don't, I'm not doing it alone by any means. It's really the faculty and staff and students that, that are at Barnard. But one thing that we started last year that I'm really proud of is a whole initiative around health and wellness called feel well, do well. And the whole idea is that health and wellness 
is not just the responsibility of the counseling center or the, our health center. It's everyone's responsibility. Oh, I faculty, love that. Staff. So last year we trained all of our frontline workers from dining um, hall workers to resident hall to faculty about how to notice um, signs of, of mental distress in our students. And, and then we're put it, we've put in a lot of support programs. The idea that it's a culture of wellness and care and, and that it's everyone's responsibility. And then the second part of it is that, you know, Barnard is an academically excellent institution and our students work hard and strive hard. But, and so we've also put a, really pushed the idea that you can't be successful in the classroom or at work without being mentally healthy as well. And so really trying to, to show that these two are really intertwined. And, and that's something that I'm really excited about. I think, you know, we are, are a model for how other institutions can think about tackling health and wellness across the entire campus. And, and that certainly comes right from my research. And I love how core your focus on, you know, psychology, mental health is in performance because they're not distinct, right? Like working hard and, and pushing yourself to excellence does require a foundation of mental wellness. And I love that you're sort of bringing that right into the programming and the day-to-day functioning of the college campus. Yeah. And in all sorts of ways, I mean, we talk, we've talked a little today, but I talk and choke about, you know, how the power of failure and, you know, not being afraid of, of getting something wrong and, and how we can learn from it. And, and we sort of have put this in in different ways at Barnard. One of my favorite things we did last year is we had these fail forward dinners where faculty would get together with a small group of students and talk about when they've failed or really screwed up. And I think, you know, for high achieving students, especially for high achieving women, you know, there tends to be sort of a desire to not push or risk take outside one's comfort zone. And it's really important to understand that everyone in leadership roles got there, not in a straight line. Like, I want every student to know that your major doesn't dictate your career path, that it's okay to mess up in a class or do something, that you have to have these failure experiences to figure out where you're going. I'm so glad that you said that. I actually just recently had on as a guest, Jess Leahy, who wrote The Gift of Failure. And this is a topic that's just near and dear to my heart. And it kind of gets to the whole idea of like, you know, growth mindset that in order to grow and do better, we have to be willing to mess up and fall on our faces because that is actually how humans learn and grow most effectively. But we do live in a culture. And I think this is especially true for, for women, for young women too, where failure just feels incredibly risky. And I think, I mean, I don't know sort of what it's like on on the Barnard campus, but I think worldwide that the exposure on social media just really makes failure and embarrassment feel that much more risky. Yeah. Well, first of all, I will point out that Carol Dweck, who, you know, um, coined the growth mindset, went to Barnard. Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) I know she's at Stanford now. Um, I didn't know she went to Barnard. That's so cool. but yeah, I think you're right. Like, first of all, we know that there's overall, on average, women tend to be less likely to use their past performance as evidence of success. And I think this is a sign of being less likely to take a risk. So a woman will only apply for a job if she has all of the qualifications, or a man will apply if he has half. You know, a woman who gets a B in a class rates her ability to go on to the next class as much lower as a man who gets the same grade. Um, and women... Overall, we tend to be very 
um, aware of what other people think and feel. And of course, I'm painting in broad strokes, but these are on average. And I think, you know, social media and being out there and being called on your every move really, really um, sort of exaggerate that. And I worry in this time when people are coming from different places, especially around issues of racial justice, that there's like a fear to talk about and a fear to to be seen as as not understanding or um, not saying the right thing. And I worry if we don't get around that, if we if we aren't normalizing being uncomfortable in these conversations, we're not going to make the progress that we so desperately need to make. I, I love that you're pointing that out. And this reminds me of a conversation that I had with one of um, the other co-hosts on this show, Diana, and we were talking about that it's less about making sure that we always say the right thing and more about the courage to have the uncomfortable conversations, but it does take a lot of courage. So I'm just curious on the, on a college campus where I think, you know, political correctness is especially important. What kinds of things do you encourage for your students so that they don't just shut down in order not to, you know, say the wrong thing? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing is we're, we have, so we have an ombuds on campus who helps students, faculty, and staff deal with issues among other students, faculty, and staff, but just leading conversations last year and this year with our student government around difficult dialogues. So I think it's practicing like anything mm-hmm. else yeah. about how to talk to people who are different than you and come from really different lived experiences. And I feel like a place like Barnard, we we have a really diverse student body. You know, I'm, we're we're need blind, and we meet full financial need. And I'm so proud of, of the students we have. But that's not enough just to have different students on campus. We have to help students learn to talk to each other about these difficult issues. So I think it really is putting structures in place. Whether it's learning how to have these conversations, having programs top down. You know, we're putting a whole series of programs together after the elections. And, you know, one of our faculty members is a commentator on Fox News who will bring a particular perspective and other faculty members will will come at it from a more likely liberal side. And I think it's so important to have these, to model the different perspectives on what's happening. So you've offered throughout our conversation a lot of specific tips, but one of the ones that you discuss a lot in Choke is practice being uncomfortable. And that's actually something that's really core to acceptance and commitment therapy too, which is to sort of make space for discomfort so that you can act in line with your values. And to me, that that advice is directly in line with that, which is, you know, to, assuming that the value is to like keep moving forward on social justice and, and keep working to understand better, It then the committed action would be to make space for feeling uncomfortable as you do that kind of work, to know that you're going to make mistakes and some things are going to come out awkwardly. And maybe even you'll have to apologize for having said something, but that the value is to kind of keep moving forward, even though it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think, you know, especially on a college campus, that is where this uncomfortableness should be encouraged, right? A classroom is the, the model place to feel uncomfortable. You know, that doesn't mean you can't make spaces for like minded or, you know, people come from similar places to have conversations just with each other. But the classroom, in my mind, is a place where it's like being uncomfortable should be the modal experience. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Barnard. You're going to be uncomfortable. <laughs> it's really good yeah. advice. And the reality is 
People who are successful are those that are okay with being uncomfortable and sort of doing the work anyway. The other thing that kind of reminds me of in terms of advice that you give in the book is to think about what to say instead of what to avoid saying. And I think that does kind of open you up to have more interesting open conversations, even if once in a while you're going to say something that you'd rather strike from the record. Yeah, I think that's really true. And, you know, when we're in this sort of avoidance mentality, we also are under this cognitive load, we're monitoring everything. And so, you know, being in a more sort of approach going forward, thinking about the things you want to understand rather than what you want to avoid is so important. And, you know, this idea of practicing being uncomfortable is sort of at the the heart of Barnard. Anna Quinlan is another uh, famous alum and, and her her quote that's all over Barnard is that, um, I, she says she majored in unafraid. Oh, I love that. Can I just give another shout out to the previous president of Barnard, Deborah Spar? I feel like if you become president of Barnard, you're sure to have a bestseller. I loved her book, Wonder Woman. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was really impactful for me like oh, a decade good. ago. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of amazing alums from Barnard, that's for sure. Yeah. So before I let you go, I'm just curious if there are other core tips that you think listeners might really appreciate in terms of strengthening their performance and reducing likelihood of choking under pressure? What are your favorites? I think obviously my book choke is a great resource. um, But I would just like, you know, I just end by saying like, we're not born chokers or thrivers, right? This is learning to succeed under pressure is a skill that you have to learn like anything else. And it's about having this toolbox of psychological techniques. It's about figuring out the ones that work for you and then implementing them. And um, that's what's so interesting about, I think, what we both do is that there's really opportunities and we see it all the time in terms of room for growth and success. It's just about figuring out what works and, and pushing on it. Yeah, I think that is the perfect message to leave on that this is something that you can work on. You can always improve your ability to perform under pressure and Um, I'll just echo that the book is chock full of really awesome tips. In fact, tips that I used right before this interview and tips I'm sure I will continue to use because um, I think performing under pressure is hard for lots of people. I also just have to give a shout out. You put up this really terrific slide or maybe somebody else put it up, but it was, it was like this pie chart of people who are imposter syndromes and it was basically like everybody's imposter syndrome. Is everybody a choker too sometimes? Of course. Yeah. Everyone is. Yeah. So pick up this book and and try out the tips because they really do help. Thank you so much, Sian, for joining me today. This was wonderful. Oh, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.